Welcome to Product Outsiders. We're not product managers, but we're close. wash and MBAs and fancy suits, we're the people standing on the outside, our sleeves rolled up, ready to get some stuff done. We're not product managers in the way you might think, but we're undeniably passionate about solving problems for real people in ways that create real value. Whatever you call us, we're dedicated to building great collaborative teams and making incredible products together. Today's episode is a continuation of our hot seat interviews where we look at what we think makes a good product manager and what they can bring to a healthy product team from a different discipline. I'm Amber Hansford, current UX design manager, former product manager, and then former developer. I'm Tammy Bolson. I'm an agile coach. I'm certified as a product owner, but I've never actually held that role. However, As an Agile practitioner, I'm super interested in the dynamics of teams as they work together to build great products. And today we have joining us Jess Lewis. I worked with Jess a few years back and they are one of my favorite UXers that I have worked with in the past. Welcome Jess, how are you doing? Good, happy to be here. This is one of my favorite product owners. So what brings you to our little podcast, Product Outsiders? I just love jamming alongside all my cross-functional teammates. And I love talking about the ways that UXers and product owners can work together to really create something that creates like both business value and user value whenever brains collide. So yeah, I'm happy to jam on that as well. Cool. Yeah. Here's the $64,000 question. What do you think makes a good product manager? Uh, so many things. <laughs> I think things that from my vantage point as an experienced designer immediately come to mind is like first and foremost, being able to communicate well. And it's a little bit of being a human in a workplace when a one answer, but there are Each of these wonderful people that you have on a team has a very different way of thinking and a very different way of speaking. And often I've found that most little team kerfuffles actually come from people just not speaking each other's languages. And if you have someone who can bring, like rally the troops uh, across sort of like linguistic divides or like field linguistic divides and it makes everything that much useful that and being able to communicate and like guide people through a product vision i think those are really really powerful skills i'm so glad that you hit on communication in some of our past podcasts we've talked a lot about how important it is for a product owner or product manager to have those skills how about in your experience how do you see that kind of interplay from a communication perspective between the people that are on the team and then the people that the product manager has to report up to as far as communication styles how do you nail that the thing that comes to mind, especially that I've learned 
even more so being in an agency. At, at the agencies that I've been at, part of what a team might be doing is building a deck that a stakeholder will use to communicate and socialize our work to a higher up. One of the things that I've learned, like someone needs to be able to identify at what level they're flying at and what the priorities of the person that they're talking to are. So the C-level or VP doesn't really care that much about your day-to-day. That's your job. And they have more like macro level priorities and they want to see how your work like plugs into this macro vision that they're helping to steer and like what in being given like tools that they can use um, whether that be KPIs or OKRs or whatever it is these specific things to to prove your case to the people that they have to talk with that's like very very different like mode of communication than getting like initiative level stakeholders like collaborating and talking to one another and some like something properly socialized within an org and that's very different than getting a team on board with a piece of functionality so that you don't have people obfuscating and sort of gumming up the work so there's like like very different levels to fly at so maybe that's piece of it is the thing that comes to my mind to to note immediately yeah that's awesome so you have to you have to have that superpower of knowing your audience and changing your message. Yeah. Yeah. Like I had this one like primary stakeholder who for some reason, and this is like a bit of like weird, like micro communication thing, but he really liked subway map diagrams. Like was really into subway map diagrams. And he was so jazzed when he saw like another team do like communicate some aspects of their project at a high level with a subway map diagram. And, you know, flows are flows. It doesn't really matter how you communicate them as long as the message gets sent. So I just started doing all of my flows at subway map diagrams. And it immediately, I don't know, it got him on board a little bit more. This like peculiarity sort of thing of like knowing your audience. What are their peculiarities? Are you going to like, tuck a slipknot joke in there because you know they really like them are you going to like add a wayne's world gif in there because you know that that'll really (laughs) (laughs) just i know that we asked this on our first interview and i feel like it needs to kind of become a tradition i want to hear a story about when you worked with a great pm and what it was that they did to make you feel that way let's see I mean, I've worked with a couple of great PMs and I'm going to steer away from talking about you, Amber. Is that my Aww. <laughs> I think that this other PM that I worked with, he sort of like did a similar thing, which I really appreciated. We were like both on this one project where we had to work very closely to identify parts of the product vision together and they like very closely just sort of had these jam sessions to talk through from his vantage point what were the things that needed to be included and did that was that on board with what I was seeing and that sort of like gave way for a conversation to germinate about where the Venn diagram fell and what 
was sort of like an outlier for me versus him. Like whenever we were working together, our conversations were very similar. That allowed us to be like really aligned and for me to advocate for things via the concrete user interface and the the system that navigates it, that is behind it, and for him to advocate that to like higher up stakeholders and through like suites of functionality and backlogs. So yeah. Wonderful. What's the best and or the most thing between being embedded in a product versus agency work? The primary difference that I've sort of like honed in on, because I've been in agencies that are like less embedded in the teams that we are working with and more recently very, very embedded in the teams that we're working with. And that it just seems like we're a remote contractor sort of like on the team and people just assume that we work with the company and then, oh, surprise, we're an agency, that sort of vibe. And throughout both of those dynamics, because they are very different dynamics from the agency side, the thing that is common and different from working internal is the, you don't really see the thing that you're working on go through many iterations. You don't like usher a product through different life cycles. You don't like continually gather data on it and and hone it and do all the rituals around that continual process. You just sort of, there's a point at which the, the project starts wrapping up And as a designer, you start working on something else. And oftentimes you don't even really see it wrap up. You just like hand off your deliverables, like handle some questions or QA things and move on and hope that you see it in the wild. So that's a really big difference, I'd say. Yeah, that must be. Yeah, that's a great answer. (laughs) It's honestly kind of sad. Yeah, it kind of like sometimes falls down a black hole and like, oh, well, that was a cool thing we designed, but I guess it never happened (laughs) for whatever reason. (laughs) Oh, I try to kind of mentor and and train my teams to never be afraid to throw away your work, Mm -hmm. but there's got to be a reason to throw away your work. Oh, um, so... (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, now that we're so sad and that's like centered around the fact that i like want to be working on more continual product stuff Mm -hmm. it's like that that, so that informs that that answer and that like vantage point so just yeah (laughs) i i mean i completely get it i would constantly have many many google alerts set up for anything that i worked on that i didn't actually get to see through to fruition yeah. and maybe that's subconsciously why I've avoided agencies. I don't know. And that makes sense. It's, it's a difficult thing to sort of grapple with. Mm-hmm. So what is that one golden nugget, that one thing that you feel like is the best skill that a product manager can have, whether it would be written down on a job description or just in working with them day to day. I keep, I'm not sure if I can like 
maybe I'll come around to putting this into a lovely encapsulated like nugget, but I keep coming back around to the ability to like communicate at these different levels because I've seen like in the past couple of years, especially what happens when work isn't properly socialized and the, the issues that that creates for everyone. You also need to be able to like, you, you need to be able to rally people, very different people around very different things in order to push something forward. Yeah. And that requires you to sort of build relationships across an org and like strike a, a balance in building those relationships, I guess. Yeah, I guess like being able to rally folks of different stripes around different things. Communication is one of those things that is integral to a healthy product team just in general, but without that cheerleader, for lack of a better phrase, of the product person being able to help, let me just mix my metaphor some more, steer the ship. Um, <laughs> you know, and that rallying point, you know, you've got to be able to, to trust the product manager at the end of the day that they're steering the ship in the right direction. But yeah, that's, that's really like 90% of it's communication. And it's listening to you because some people just want to hold on to a vision and don't let it evolve. And it's kind of sad when you have like a ton of really fantastic brains in the room and a lot of years of experience and knowledge in the room and people are gelling and wanting to help shape something and feel a sense of ownership. And that doesn't happen just because of... Um, Whatever the reason is, <laughs> could be a range of reasons, but it just mm -hmm. isn't a allowed to happen by the person. So I guess you've got to be able to, in, in steering the ship, adjust the what you're navigating by, like check for different constellations to bring you to a destination. Making metaphor casseroles. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm a fan of analogies and metaphors. Always have been, always will be. Um. <laughs> I think you, you touched on that, that there are sometimes, we, we spoke before in a previous podcast about this concept of the single ringable neck that a lot of product folk are taught is their job that honestly, I think we were working together when I was still under some weird uh, delusion. I would say to the team, you know, if we win, we all win. And if we fail, it's all my fault. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's so unhealthy. Yeah, I've grown since then. But it, it can take that manner of not being able to either listen or communicate properly to a multitude of disciplines of personalities in just a base of either at the tamest I don't want to kill my darlings and at its worst territorialism mm -hmm. and trying to find that healthy balance to get things out there is probably one of the things that is the hardest to learn and also the hardest to teach yeah 
what advice, I'm sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. but what uh, nuggets of advice would you have for folks who are like actively navigating that in their careers? So I'm sure it's like a continual learning process. It's something that you don't stop. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like a career length thing, it sounds like. Uh, being able to adapt on the fly is something that you will never be able to put on your resume. There's no succinct way to put that into a page or two, but that ability to almost take, I call it my worst case scenario brain. Um, I, I joke around that my grandmother is sitting in the back of my head, just waiting and telling me exactly how everything can go absolutely horrifically wrong. Mm -hmm. And let's plan for that. And then if it doesn't happen, you've done your job. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, you know, trying to be as proactive as possible, making sure that you've got structures in place, processes in place that work when you need them to and get out of your way when they aren't necessary. A lot of folks hear process and structure and then next thing you know, you're reading a book and it's a Bible and you must follow it X, Y, Z. And that's not real life. It's just, there's just no real life there. You've got to be able to see where you're going enough that you don't trip and, and throw everything into disarray and don't just spend your life being reactive. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that like line, uh, like that, that difference between adaptability and reactivity seems like a really useful thing to spend a lot of time meditating on just as a person yeah. gen generally but yeah. also a practitioner or like a, a leader trying to build cool things for the folks yeah and i think sometimes we we get in our own ways mm -hmm. by focusing yes this is a really cool thing but does it solve a problem that sometimes gets lost. And then there's other folks that are just like, you know, purely I've got a problem and I need to solve it without the cool part. You need both. You need flexibility and a structure in place. Just to throw yet another analogy out there into the wild. I used to uh, say that I could sit there and I could play and I could be, you know, full on startup, but mom and dad would be able to bail me out at some of the larger companies that I worked at that had those, you know, pure R&D innovation, just slap it against the wall, see if it sticks. But you found out really easily and very quickly that if it's just cool or if it's just solving a problem, it probably won't be used outside of the necessity aspect of that solving a problem or the shameless early adopters. Yeah, in agencies, I've specifically seen that like cool factor mainly used to be a shiny thing to attract a client it's like <laughs> but you might be like coming to an agency to like solve a really honestly usually very direct problems like you know like a, you need your website redesigned okay you need a different shopping experience okay you need um a new brand cool done that a thousand times <laughs> it's great but the thing that might sell people in to one agency over another is the shiny, like the little shiny factor, which is a weird dynamic. A lot of like R&D arms only exist for the client walkthroughs. 
like barely drive home. <laughs> I've like had friends like be at their places for the client walkthrough, like fake like soldering something together, whatnot. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of trippy, honestly, when you think about it. It's a another interesting way that I've seen like the purely like cool stuff, ooh, shiny, be used in a way that it doesn't seem to actually bring much use into the world. <laughs> it's mostly just to like sell in a couple mil. <laughs> you know? You've got to find that balance to be able to solve the problem in a cool way, I guess. There were plenty of corporations that I worked at that also had the complete theater aspect of look at these really cool things that we've put together that are meaningless. I worked at a very large media corporation and we had a lot of contracts with other sports agencies, entertainment agencies, things like that. So we would pull out the the agency model of the look at this really shiny thing that we built not actually ever going to get used because it it wasn't anything that our customers our viewers actually cared about but yeah it got us a couple of really spicy contracts though <laughs> <laughs> yeah that usability aspect is so the thing that always gets me is how often the backbone that gets you to understanding what is usable, user research, gets super waylaid in the process of creating anything. It's the first thing to get cut. Mm -hmm. The absolute first thing. It's the backbone of everything. It's certainly how I think about UX. It's very difficult for me to design anything useful when I don't have a goal in mind and associate that with like, like having everything be research based. Uh, if I'm not basing things in research or in the user's context alongside business needs, of course, then balancing those two, then I'm just pulling assumptions out of my rear end and trying to like shove it into what looks like a business shaped <laughs> I guess <laughs> but even more metaphors <laughs> or maybe that's like the second part of the ship <laughs> yeah um, there we go I love it just to to kind of play off of the research god bless if you actually do get the product folk going yes we need this user research we need this we need this and they do it once and they think they're done Oh, yeah, yeah, we got it. We got it down. Let's move on and let's build this thing and get it out there. And then they never go back and find out whether or not they were successful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that stunned me how little people think about how they want to measure their success. They just like launch a thing and don't even think about like, well, what what does success mean to us does that mean more signups of what percent does that mean that people like click through a process with a lot of products like some of the google maps integrations i think it's actually successful whenever you get a person to log out of the system and not complete a process because it means that they found the thing that they were looking for 
if you don't do follow-up research, if you don't check in in some way, or at least like have like little stop gates in place to pulse check, uh, how do you know that that is a thing that measures success? Because in most contexts, it's just a person locked out of your system. What? Oh, they didn't complete the intended path. That's terrible. No, they actually got what they needed uh, and they still super trust you. So that's good. They didn't finish their NPS survey. What? <laughs> From an agile perspective, if we're not doing that, then we can't deliver that smallest, most valuable thing and measure the effectiveness so that we can build the next smallest, best thing in the next iteration. So that's huge, Jess. I'm glad you brought it up. If we don't, you know, if we don't have the user feedback, how do we know that we're we're doing the right thing or that we're going to build the right next thing? Yeah, totally. How do you find yourself setting that up in a really useful way, at least in your experience, Danny? In my experience, it's a constant reminder because we get so busy and it's so easy to focus on that output. Yeah. That we have to constantly remind the people that we work with that, hey, when we deliver something, first of all, we have to know going in what our expectations are, what, how are we going to measure success? And then we have to remember once it's gone out, we have to circle back and say, okay, this is what our hypothesis was. Yeah. Did our hypothesis prove out? And if it didn't, what are we going to do next? And if you don't have that user feedback, you can't do it. So it's, in my experience, it's a constant drum that we have to beat to keep reminding us to go back. It seems elementary, but in practice, it's not. Yeah, it's so easy to become sort of like hypnotized delivering these concrete things, like even the language of deliverable delivery, like pushing code. It's like a specific thing that you serve and manipulate. I also really appreciate the language of hypothesis. I find it personally really a useful framework to use in thinking about the whole process holistically. And it helps in communicating with cross-functional teammates because everyone sort of gets the idea of a hypothesis. But <laughs> maybe they slept through, you know, chemistry class, which is fine. <laughs> but the necessity of like coming back around and seeing if it's true or not seems really helpful. Have, have you seen people like glom onto that framework? I think so. A lot of the teams I've worked with use that empirical evidence thinking they have that scientific approach. So yeah, I think it is. It's something that most people understand. If you're going to form a hypothesis, you always have to circle back and see whether or not it was proven out. Yeah, I think it's pretty adaptable. That's cool. I think if you can approach it in that hypothesis forward, it's easier for the entire team. That's product, UX, dev, QE, etc. All of them can get on the same page and it makes being able to focus on that customer problem. If you can target down a hypothesis, whether you're just throwing a quick problem statement and hypothesis together on the fly or whether it's a more formal like design thinking workshop that it's happening in, it helps get the entire team on the same page and speaking the same language. And then your role in when your product becomes a hell of a lot easier because you've already gotten like half the battle done. <laughs> <laughs> by getting everybody speaking the same language. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. 
Thank you so much for coming out and chatting with us, Jess. I really appreciate it. And I miss you so much. I miss you too. It was wonderful to meet you, Tammy, and to chat with both of y'all. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, likewise. And for those folks listening at home, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Product Outsiders. Uh, we are looking for your feedback. Please hit up our website, productoutsiders.com, or find us on any of the major podcasting platforms and leave us a review or a like or a subscribe. Stay gold, outsiders. Stay gold.